Hello, and welcome to Public Key, the podcast from Chainalysis. This is your host, Ian Andrews. By the time you hear this episode, we'll have released the first few sections of our annual Chainalysis crypto crime report. The big news? Crime was up in 2022 to about 20 billion in illicit activity. But amazingly, that accounted for only about one quarter of 1% of all the transactions in crypto. 2022 saw record highs for DeFi hacks, but many of the other categories of crime are down. In this episode, I'm joined by my unofficial co-host and director of research at Chainalysis, Kim Grauer. Together, we review the biggest news of 2022 from investment scams to phishing attacks, pig butchering to ransomware. Then we get into the emergence of the Web3 ecosystem and what we saw from the on-chain collapses of major crypto companies like FTX and Terra Luna. We also recap findings from the Global Adoption Index and some of the grassroots crypto adoption happening around the world. For more on these topics and all things crypto, start planning your trip to New York for the Chainalysis Links Conference, which is happening April 4th and 5th. Get your tickets soon because I've extended the early bird purchase window by just a few weeks. Ticket prices will go up soon. You'll find registration details in the show notes. We're recording our first episode of 2023, exciting milestone, and I am joined by the guest who led off our first episode ever of Public Key, my occasional co-host, Kim Grauer, Director of Research here at Chainalysis. Kim, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me and welcome to 2023 yourself. Well, I think it's the perfect time of year to do a bit of a retro back on everything that happened in 2022. It's kind of amazing. It felt like the year maybe was 24 months. It's hard to believe all the things that happened over just the last 12 months in the crypto industry. And then as we get to the end of the episode, I'm going to try and drag some predictions out of you. So looking ahead to what we've got in store over the next 12 months as well. But I know right now your team has been really busy over the last couple of weeks working on the crypto crypto crime report. Everyone anticipates that content coming out every year. This episode should publish just as we've released the overview section of the crime report. What's the headline? Obviously, asset prices are way down year over year. What's that done to the the criminal element? What are we seeing out there? It is all heads down and we're, it is always cool to put the whole year into context and see how things shifted and changed and how criminal organizations evolved to real-time events like major sanctioning activities and wars and everything and hacking incidents. And so putting it all into one place is always really exciting because maybe you've caught up on little themes, but maybe you've never put it all together into one place. So this is actually a really fun time of year, even though it is hard to quantify and think about all crime everywhere all cryptocurrency, so it's quite the undertaking. What we're seeing is a few different stories coming out. We reported in the middle of the year that criminal activity was trending down, and that is for a variety of reasons. No two criminal types of activity are alike. So scamming and darknet market activity and hacking are all motivated by different things and are all impacted by different kind of world events. So scamming is down, for example, because asset prices are down. Hacking is up because there's many targets that are still vulnerable and have kind of code exploits that people are able to take advantage of. So we're seeing a lot of different things and I'm really excited to elaborate on each different type of criminal activity in the crime report. I think the high level numbers are we are seeing crime at all time highs. We're seeing hacking is continuing to grow up even though we called last year the year of the hack. We're still seeing unprecedented level of 
hacking happening. We're seeing really interesting trends with ransomware threat actors who are pivoting their activities because of the Russia war. So there's a lot going on in crime. Never a dull moment in the world of crypto crime. I think it's really interesting what you said there about scams being down as dollar values are down. Like, talk a little bit more about what we think is going on there. Obviously, we're speculating on the motives of criminals, but I'm curious, like, why are we guessing that activity has dropped off, particularly in the second half of the year? The most profitable type of scam has kind of always been, and I suspect will continue to be, the investment scam in cryptocurrency. This is the type of scam that takes advantage of people's willingness to, their desire to grow their wealth using cryptocurrency. And in cryptocurrency in particular, there's this reputation, I don't know if you know about it, where you can see your money go 10x or 100x on just the right investment. And so scammers are have obviously taken advantage of this and said, hey, I've created this new incredible trading bot. And if you give me your money, I can get you 5x returns for life. And so that's the biggest type of scam that we see in terms of raw value when it comes to people sending their money to these types of scams. And so that, of course, will go down when investment across the board is down because no one is sending their money to a scam contract thinking, hey, I'm sending to a scam. They think, hey, you know what? I'm investing. And to the extent that investment is down, so is the part that is captured by scammers. Of course, that's not the only type of scam. There's phishing. One thing we're really paying attention to this year is pig butchering, which is a type of scam that is growing. So as we have seen in the past few years, there's been a lot of major successes by, for example, the CFTC in trying to crack down on non-registered investment vehicles or other scams in the United States and around the world. And so scammers have adapted and reacted by, okay, maybe not setting up a blatant website that's in violation of many different laws based in the United States. So they'll do targeted attacks after one or two people where there's not a website people can go to. These are your typical romance scams. So someone starting a relationship with someone over a long period of time. And I was talking to someone the other day who's an investigator who said that they were working on a $10 million pig butchering scam where a single person was victimized out of $10 million from a scammer who was doing this personalized approach. We did a great episode last year with Alistair McCready from Vice News talking about pig butchering. And it's terrible to hear about the victims of these scams. But I was actually more surprised to learn about the industrialization of the scam operations and the fact that it's now being interwoven with human trafficking. A lot of the people at the front line of the scam operations are actually there against their will in a forced labor context. You know, his estimate was something like 10,000 people are in involved in this. And it's because of things like the pandemic have pushed other forms of organized crime revenue off the table. Travelers from China who would have been gambling money away in places like Cambodia and Laos were no longer able to leave the country. And so the organized criminals were then having to pivot basically to other forms of money making. Pig butchering has turned out to be an incredibly lucrative one. And that has just grown an incredible amount over the last few years. I think maybe on 
on the good news side is it seems like you know some of our friends in law enforcement, like Aaron West out in California, has been successful in some of at least the domestic operators of pig butchering at both prosecuting some of the criminals and recovering some of the stolen funds for victims, which was some good news I saw in the last couple months. Yeah, law enforcement is all over pig butchering from at least the law enforcement agencies that I've talked to. And I think in part because the stories are extremely compelling. Vulnerable people are targeted, as you mentioned, with the human trafficking dimension. And I've heard that happening as well. But also in terms of who the victims are, we've got people targeting older people. And so it's on the radar of many of these law enforcement agencies around the world who actually have been really proactive because they, they kind of understand the power of some of our data so they can show us what the investigation looks like and then they come to us and say let's scale this where else are we seeing these types of activities and we're seeing a lot of proactivity in law enforcement in trying to proactively go after potential other victims or people who haven't figured out that the person they're talking to is actually scamming them. Kim you also touched on one of the other big forms of crime that we've seen historically which was ransomware that I think we actually Chris in 2021 as the year of ransomware. It fell out of the headlines somewhat in 2022. What did we actually see from a trendline perspective? Was it truly down and did that stay sustained throughout 2022? Ransomware pretty much exploded on the scene probably about two and a half years ago. We started to just see unprecedented levels of ransomware attacks happening from many different strains, many of which were based in Russia. And that kind of continued substantially throughout the year. But then entering into 2022, we didn't hear so much about big numbers, big ransomware attacks. I mean, we know that, for example, national governments were targeted. We hear still about ransomware attacks happening, but it didn't feel like as big of an issue as it did in the year before when we had, for example, the colonial attack against critical infrastructure in the United States. And one of the reasons why that is, is when we crunch all the numbers and we look at how much ransomware is being paid, it's just down this year and it's down substantially. And I think there's a lot of reasons why that is, but by and large, we're seeing people pay ransoms less. We're also seeing ransomware sometime being less profitable. We're seeing it being harder to carry out attack. We're seeing law enforcement come out and arresting people all around the world who are a part of these ransomware criminal gangs. It doesn't necessarily mean that there are fewer attempts at ransomware because it's impossible to know how many ransomware attacks there are that people simply didn't pay. And ransomware is chronically a difficult place to get good data on. But that's what we're seeing in terms of our data. And I will say Chainalysis does have some of the best ransomware data in the world. Yeah, it's interesting. If you don't pay the ransom, there's no on-chain record of that interaction. So companies, organizations, individuals may be getting hacked. They may be getting approached by these ransomware operators demanding a payment. If they choose not to pay and just recover their infrastructure in some other way, we won't see that show up in Chainalysis data. So looking at the number of payments and the total amount paid to these ransomware operators, that number's gone down over 2022. I wonder, you know, is this a case of the ransomware operators being a victim of their own success in 2021? Like it became such a international recognized problem, right? You suddenly had governments around the world setting up task forces and allocating expert resources to go combat the issue. Is that what drove the decline or are there other things potentially going on you think behind the scenes? 
I think probably there's many things happening at once. The biggest reason that's cited to me is that people are just paying less and people are working with expert negotiators who train them on how to handle and mitigate a situation when they are attacked. People are aware that ransomware is a real problem and are probably investing more in their cybersecurity to protect themselves against ransomware attacks should they happen. There might be like a kill switch or something that can prevent all their systems from going down. And we've also heard of another, this is just a theory, and I'm trying to figure out how to look at this with data, that a majority of the attackers are in Russia. We've shown something like 74% last year of the major strains had some sort of Russia footprint that some of these cyber criminals are turning their attention elsewhere because of the war. And those are some of the reasons that I'm thinking. And we actually are trying to figure out, is there any way we can figure out if ransomware attacks are genuinely less than in the past. And we were thinking, hey, we could look at something that we thought called the reinvestment ratio, where how much profit is a ransomware strain getting versus how much are they reinvesting in the actual critical infrastructure that they need in order to carry out an attack. So if they're still spending a lot in carrying out their attacks, but their revenue is reduced, then you can figure out that maybe they really are carrying out the same amount of attacks, but getting less revenue for those attacks. Now, that's some fascinating information. Will we get to see the results of that analysis in the crime report or will that come as a follow on? Right now it's in the crime report. Yes. Awesome. People have to go download and read the crime report to get that analysis. I'm curious about financial crimes specifically in this world of Web3. Like everybody got very excited about NFTs over the last 12 months. We've seen, I think the latest count was 3 million people downloaded or minted Reddit's profile picture NFTs. You know, the Bored Apes obviously had a banner year. Donald Trump NFTs. <laughs> oh my gosh. Don't get me started on the Donald Trump NFTs. Yes, very successful launch for his project there. I wanted to buy one and send it to my mother-in-law, who's not a Donald <laughs> Trump fan for Christmas, but <laughs> didn't do that. The ultimate gag gift. So what did we see over the course of the year in Web3 in terms of financial crime? What we saw was Web3 has scams. And we saw some really interesting new types of scams, which we are going to highlight in the crime report. For example, people taking advantage of quirks in smart contracts and being able to sell an NFT to someone, but within the code, they've actually created a way where they can initiate sending that NFT back to themselves. So quirky ways of people exploiting the complex nature of smart contracts and in order to carry out new types of scams. We're also seeing, of course, I don't think this was implicit in your question, but I have to talk about it anyway. The amount of hacking happening of these DeFi protocols continues to be unprecedented. We're seeing that DeFi smart contract vulnerabilities continue to be exploited by bad actors and another type of DeFi exploit that's actually the question of, is this a hack or is this not a hack? I think is something that's going to be playing out in court probably with this whole Manko market situation, but flash loans. So people manipulating low liquidity tokens in order to give themselves loans and then kind of manipulate the market in that way. We're, we're seeing a few examples of that too. So flash loans continue to be a big part of this industry. And then the last thing that we're really paying attention to is market manipulation. So wash trading, front running, pumping and dumping. And so it's a really diverse types of crime are happening within the Web3 ecosystem. People are getting really creative with all of the technical things that can be exploited within a smart 
smart contract. And it's been pretty fascinating to put all together. I think one of my observations has been the complexity and sophistication has gone way up. So it's not just, oh, I had an error in my Solidity contract and funds were drained. We have multiple attack vectors happening in in many of these hacks. We have very sophisticated trading activity happening in the case of like Avi Eisenberg and the, the Mango Markets market manipulation attack. I think we've got people who are very much professionalization of the DeFi and NFT criminal activity. Even some of the phishing attacks that I'm seeing, there was a gentleman who over the holidays, one of the early Bitcoin developers, you know, reported on Twitter that he had lost a substantial amount of funds. I saw something just a couple days ago, fairly sophisticated NFT operator lost all his NFTs, both in phishing attacks. So it seems like the people who are on the bad guy side of the ledger are upping their game, if you will. It's not just catching unsuspecting victims. Yeah, I think that creative attacks have been a part of the cryptocurrency and typical financial world for all of time. And you see people doing extremely creative things in order to take advantage of a victim. And the new thing about DeFi is people are getting really good at understanding how smart contract code works. And in addition to kind of just social engineering or tricking someone or having a security breach through just sending someone an email and having them click on a phishing link, which then downloads a malware on their computer, you can use the complexity of smart contracts in ways that the developers didn't even think to take into consideration and to attack a potential victim. And so we're seeing people really utilizing all of this open source code and coming up with new ways of stealing funds. Now, we also saw a couple cases come back to life. I think organizations and incidents that we hadn't thought about maybe over a couple quarters, maybe a couple years. First, BTCE, which was this infamous Russian exchange, had been shut down, taken offline. What seemingly was a few hundred million dollars of funds frozen started moving right at the end of the year. What, what was the story there? This is one of the cool things about cryptocurrency is how old cases can come back to life and you can be monitoring wallets for a long time and then all of a sudden an old case that maybe you had a cold case that you were investigating from a long time ago, suddenly there are transfers and you can get automatic alerts and you can trace those funds and you can see where the funds go. And so everyone was very excited when BTCE case came back to life and we were able to reinvigorate that specific case. The other one that was big news was Quadriga This Canadian exchange where the founder had passed away under mysterious circumstances. His co-founder was later discovered to be a part of the Wonderland DeFi ecosystem. Again, a few hundred million dollars worth of cryptocurrency seemingly lost in the collapse of Quadriga. They came back to life and funds started suddenly moving out of these wallets that seemingly the private keys had been been lost. What's the story in the news there? Any anything of note? I don't quite know what's happening with that. I know that with the what happened with the CEO, Gerald Cotton, when Quadriga was originally hacked, there was a ton of investigations and uncertainty into what happened with the funds. I think people thought that he potentially faked his own death and transferred the funds to his wife. And that's when we learned about the faking your death industry, which is a whole other can of worms. And then all of a sudden, these funds come back to life and we can see these transfers happening on the blockchain. But you know, I don't, I don't know exactly what the story is with that or what happened with those funds or why they're moving now or where they're going or who's controlling the wallet. Your guess is as good as mine. 
I haven't seen anything publicly reported. So yeah, it could be any of the things you suggested for sure. And I guess we'll have to wait. You know, this will be a story for us to talk about more in 2023 is both the BTCE and Quadriga CX conclusions. For anybody that's listening that hadn't heard of Quadriga, by the way, there's a great Netflix documentary that a number of people have recommended out there. So go check out the backstory if you're into true crime dramas. One of the other big reports that we put out every year, the opposite side of the coin, of the crime report is the geo report. Give us some of the high level takeaways from adoption around the world. I know you spent a lot of time exploring where crypto is being used, not for criminal activity, not for speculative adoption, but actually real world utility, which is kind of a perpetual topic in this industry. What were the big takeaways from this year's geo adoption report? The Geo Report is so fascinating because it's the one time of year where we can really dial in on the many legitimate use cases of cryptocurrency that are happening all around the world. We've got this great data set where we can merge our on-chain wallet data that's proprietary to Chainalysis with web traffic data, and we can get a sense of where in the world are people sitting when they're engaging with different types of cryptocurrency platforms. So we can see where are people when they're visiting scam platforms or decentralized exchange contracts or lending protocols. And I think that the biggest takeaway was that the Middle East and North Africa became the fastest growing region in the world, which kind of snuck up on our radar because the year before, it was not that noteworthy in terms of the rate of which it was growing. And then all of a sudden, it's the number one fastest growing region by far. And we got to talk to people in the region. And I think there was a big shift during the pandemic. I think a lot of people were pushed online. And there were a lot of amazing products that were offered to people to make onboarding into cryptocurrency easier and more straightforward. And uh, the people in the Middle East and North Africa region were using, of course, a variety of reasons, depending on the country and even city, were using it for investment purposes to grow your wealth. I think one common misconception around cryptocurrency is that people who are investing in cryptocurrency are like YOLO gambling, and they're just putting everything on random tokens. But in reality, it's tapping into a real human desire to grow your wealth in a, susta- in a sustainable way. It's just some people don't have access to the same financial products that that we do. And so they so that's what we saw in the Middle East. And then another really big story, which was actually my favorite story, was the rate at which DeFi was growing in Central and Southern Asia, in India, in Vietnam, in the Philippines, in Indonesia. Even though we have seen NFT trading kind of coming down, we've seen the DeFi bubble was really in May of 2021, the second half of 2021, we actually saw Central and Southern Asia kind of growing in their use of DeFi, NFTs. And depending on the country, we, for example, the Philippines, there was a lot of gaming. I'm thinking Axie. In India, there were quite a lot of NFT real use cases for people. And then the final story that I'll point out was in Latin America, particularly Latin America has some of the most diverse use cases of cryptocurrency of any region. Region. So it's, you can't really lump it into one, but we'll take Argentina, where there was a growing amount of activity for people who were just trying to protect themselves against inflation, specifically in Argentina, because of the rates of inflation they were facing, plus they were not allowed to hold a certain amount of US dollars. So they really just wanted exposure to the US dollar. I guess I do have to mention that uh, we also, even during the bear market, saw growth in retail transfers in Sub-Saharan Africa, which are for yet another different use case. I think those 
those kind of cover the main takeaways. But in a year that was really characterized by bear markets and what's happening with institutional money and, oh my gosh, Terra collapsed and that impact that all these crypto hedge funds went under, you saw kind of sustainable use cases growing in an organic, healthy way around the world, which was reassuring. One of my favorite episodes of the podcast last year, I got to talk to the CEO of Paxful, Ray Youssef, and we talked a lot about his Built with Bitcoin initiative, which is all about financial education and then onboarding people into crypto and the huge impact that that makes in countries where there are tight capital controls and restrictions on foreign currency, which is absolutely necessary to operate in this kind of global world. We ended the year, actually the first episode released in January talking to the founding team from Busha, the largest exchange in Nigeria, and they made a point of explaining to get dollars, basically to go to the central bank and exchange the local currency, the Naira, for a dollar, could take up to months and was highly unpredictable the amount of currency you'd be able to get. So you imagine operating a business where you need to pay for raw materials or to import products that are manufactured abroad into the country and your local currency is not accepted and the central bank is highly restricting the amount of capital you have access to, even if you have a profitable, successful business, that's a massive headwind and challenge. And so Bitcoin and stable coins on the Ethereum network play such a huge role in changing that dynamic in a really positive way. And I think you and I living in the United States, we kind of miss that experience, at least on a firsthand basis. So I just loved having those conversations. It was such high contrast from the, as you described it so perfectly, the YOLO gambler mentality that we sometimes spend too much time focused on in the world of crypto. Can't let us get away from a 2022 recap without talking about the cascading collapse of some of the cornerstone institutions, I think, in the world of crypto. Early in the year, this huge stablecoin project, Terra Luna, went under. That then seemed to drive contagion across the ecosystem and hit Voyager and BlockFi. And obviously, we ended the year with everyone talking about FTX. How should we characterize this? I I don't know that it falls strictly under the banner of crypto crime and the report that you're working on right now, but there's clearly a huge impact to the ecosystem, to the adoption, to the enthusiasm. Like, What are the big takeaways we should have a few months removed from at least a, a couple of these? It's really fascinating to put it all into perspective. So you've got the Terra collapse, UST, DPEGs in early May. Then you've got the contagion spreading to Three Arrows Capital, Celsius, and Voyager, BlockFi, and then to Alameda and FTX. And each of these companies are really different, which is something that I found in my research. We are actually covering it in the crime report. We're not including it in the high-level numbers, but we're covering it in the crime report because the people running these companies are actually being subpoenaed and getting arrested. The AG of New York put out a subpoena of Alex Mashinsky, I think yesterday or this morning for who's the CEO of Celsius. So there's potentially, if not definitely, a crime element here. So we're covering it. We're doing a full retro. But I think that there's three themes that have emerged when I look at all this together. There's companies that have taken on too much risk. And there's companies that have 
used tokens like FTT as collateral for taking out loans on top of having too much risk. So for example, with UST, all of a sudden, for example, Three Arrows Capital has a huge hole in their balance sheet and they can't pay off large loans to Celsius or the other people whom they own money to. And then on top of that, like that's kind of par for the course that happens in business a lot. People take bets and they sometimes they lose. But on top of that, the collateral that was used by, for example, particularly Alameda, was tokens basically 90% controlled by one institution themselves. So on top of taking risks, there's this problem with the type of collateral that's being put up. And of course, there's policy and regulatory ways to intervene on those two things. And we can see this all happening on chain. But then the third risk is something that is, I think, a part of this as well, which is cybersecurity risk. As many of these organizations through this were also hacked. We have the FTX hack. We have Celsius hack and BadgerDAO. And so all all these three things together are different types of systemic risk that are all happening all at once. And I think each organization is guilty of doing one, two, or even three combinations of all those different types of risk. It's great to break this down because I think the default in a lot of the media that's covered this, who is external to the industry, is like crypto's unsafe, it's too volatile, there's a bunch of characters who have been operating at a minimum with bad business practices, allegedly full-blown criminal frauds. I think it'll take us a while to play this out, but you make great points there, right? There's highly risky ventures, there's non-existent collateral, and then there's poor cyber and operational high hygiene, you combine all those three things together, you get exactly what we had in 2022, which is a bunch of companies go away. And unfortunately, a lot of people lost a lot of money. We're still seeing the contagion. We're still seeing how that plays out and what's who's next. How's the contagion? There's so many questions that are really well positioned to answer. But I think the thing that I like the most, if you had to draw a silver lining, is that 2022 spelled out exactly what the industry needs to do to improve. We need to improve our cybersecurity. We need to figure out what's the deal with being able to print your own token. How do you regulate that? Because there are some very legitimate tokens that people print. They're properly backed and they're used as collateral. So what's the line there? I think that all of the these three risks that are presented here are, it's like a homework assignment. Figure this out as an industry and that's how you move forward because these are the three problems. That's a great positive and optimistic outlook. <laughs> We've got some work to do between our, our friends in DC on the regulatory and legislative side and obviously the industry coming together. That's what we're gonna have to work on in 2023. It's gonna get better. I'm excited for 2023. Kim, thank you again for joining me today my, as my unofficial co-host. Yes. Uh, we'll do this again soon. <laughs> thank you so much. This was really fun. Thanks for listening to another episode of Public Key. Follow Chainalysis on Twitter, LinkedIn, our newly launched TikTok channel, and of course our revamped YouTube site, where we share our favorite moments captured in this podcast and other great content from the Chainalysis team. And if you've got a minute, drop me a tweet at IanAndrewsDC and tell me what you'd like to see next. I'm going to brag a little bit to close out today's show. Chainalysis has just been named one of Built-In's 2023 Best Places to Work. You only win these awards when you've built a great culture with an awesome team. And if that gets you interested, then come check out our career site, linked in the show notes. We continue to hire for roles across the company and around the world. So I hope to see you soon.